Well, Father, what a privilege is ours to know that we do have a loving Heavenly Father and that by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, we can be your children and we can have the privilege of your protecting hand upon us and you will carry us in your hand. Thank you, Father, now for this time when we anticipate your working in us and in the way that the surgeon takes the scalpel. May your Holy Spirit take the word now and and penetrate our hearts. Work in us. Renew us. Reveal to us the areas that need addressed. Grow us in our knowledge and our understanding of your word and, and therefore the truth. And we know that the truth sets us free. We know that we gain strength from your word and that it guides us and directs us. And may we even worship you as we listen to the word this morning. May Jesus Christ be lifted up. May your authority be seen in the scripture. And may we with humble hearts and open minds enter in now and engage with you and your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I would suggest that few people would disagree with me when I say that there are very few things uglier than families that are fighting. Some of you have some experience with divided families or division in your home. What an awful thing it is when loved ones divide, when there's infighting, And even when things inflame to the point of hatred, it's not a new problem, it's not a contemporary problem. In fact, in our studies in Genesis, we found, didn't we, by chapter 4, right in the beginning of the book, we had a family that had divided and was fighting. We had one brother who killed another. I'm thinking throughout Scripture, even in the New Testament. Do you remember that occasion in Luke chapter 12? It's a, it's a familiar story where he told the story of the rich fool who was going to build barns and tear down his barns and build bigger. Jesus told that story, do you remember, in response as the crowd had gathered around him to a, a man who had yelled out from the audience, Master Rabbi, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. That'll divide a family, won't it? What do you mean? I want the table saw. You can have the lawnmower. Right? Money divides families, hurt feelings, words tear down, don't they? I was thinking of how even in King David, you know, David who killed Goliath, in his family, how there was such dysfunction and disarray, and one of his own sons tried to create a coup and take over the kingdom, ended up hanging by his beautiful long hair from an oak tree, and one of David's general ran three darts through his heart. David broke down and wept when they told him his son Absalom had been killed. Can you imagine? Can you imagine your son trying to kill you, your son trying to take over your kingdom? It's awful. It's awful. We're going to touch upon, towards the end of our message, a story in Genesis that we will spend uh, a number of messages in, and that's the life of Joseph. What a remarkable character he is. Do you remember what happened in that household? Oh, the father loved the one son, Joseph, more than the others. He even notated that by this coat of many colors, didn't he? And he uh, held him up before his older brothers to the point that they were envious and jealous and they hated him. 
They sought to kill him, threw him in a pit, sold him to slave traders. Horrible when families divide. Well, today, you can turn to Genesis chapter 16, if you will, please. We're going to find out today the origin of the, what I call, the ultimate family feud. It's not a TV game show. In fact, this family feud in Genesis chapter 16, where brothers will end up divided, this family feud began some 2,000 years before the birth of Christ, and now some 2,000 years after the birth of Christ, is still has to be characterized as the ultimate family feud. And I say it's the ultimate family feud because I would say it has to win the prize as the longest ongoing family feud. There's never been a, a longer family feud than this one, including Hatfields and McCoys. I'm not sh they intermarried a little bit, but actually I think that was neighbors fighting. It has to be the ultimate family feud because far and away it's the bloodiest family feud. It's not unusual at all for family members to kill each other, is it? In a state of, in a state of wicked sinfulness. But this family feud that originates in Genesis 16 has created, in essence, a bloodbath around the world for all these hundreds of years. And in light of that, I categorize it as the biggest family feud. So I call it the ultimate family feud. And it all began because one distressed woman, wife, influenced her husband to stop waiting upon the Lord and to take matters into his own hands. And this began a division in the family that will never go away until the Lord returns. Let's read Genesis chapter 16 together, shall we please, in our study of Genesis. We have done the first half of this chapter. That's what was the springboard to lead us into a couple messages to think about spiritual leadership in our homes. But we never really finished the second part of Genesis 16. And um, it's quite interesting as we think about the origin of this great family feud that is ongoing even today. You'll recall as we read, I'm sure, the story. Genesis 16, beginning with verse 1. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. But she had an Egyptian maidservant named Hagar. So she said to Abram, The Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my maidservant, and perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarai said. And so after Abram had been living in Canaan ten years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian maidservant, Hagar, and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar... And she conceived. When she knew that she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. And then Sarai said to Abram, You are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my servant in your arms, and now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your servant is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. And then Sarah, Sarai mistreated Hagar so that she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. 
It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai, she answered. Let me do that again. I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai, she answered. And then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will so increase your descendants that they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, You are now with child, and you will have a son, and you shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery, and he will be a wild donkey of a man, and his hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand against him, and he will live in hostility towards all his brothers. And she gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. That is why the well was called Bir Lahoi Roy. It is still there between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son she had born. And Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. What an interesting story, and let's just remind ourselves what's happened. The emotional state of Sarai is at an all-time low at the beginning of chapter 16 because she's been in this Eastern culture unable to produce a child, which is a stigma, a negative stigma. Not only that, it is a part of this whole framework of the promise of God's covenant with Abram that we've studied so far, these promises that have been repeated, that God will raise up a nation and, a, and give him a land. And so we begin the chapter with what, what I call, number one, Sarai's hopelessness. Sarai's hopelessness, verses 1 and 2. Out of that hopelessness springs, number 2, Abram's faithlessness. Abram's faithlessness. She tells him to go take Hagar, her Egyptian servant girl, marry her, lie down with her, as was the cultural, acceptable norm of the day. And Abram did this, I believe, knowingly outside of the will of God. I think that he knew he was forcing something that God never intended, and by taking matters into his own hands instead of waiting upon God, Abram creates the ultimate family feud and the, this great mess. Abram's faithlessness, shortchanging the will of God, lying down with Hagar, produces, number three, Sarai's bitterness. Verses four and five Sarai, of course, cannot help but feel like the misplaced wife, especially with Hagar starting to pat her tummy, humming as she works, rolling her eyes at her mistress Sarai in a way that she never had before, disrespecting her as she grew in her confidence as the new wife, recognizing that she had the legal standing of the old wife, realizing that she now had a child who potentially would be a son and would be the heir of promise, she thought. And Sarai, she just can't stand this. And so this bitterness bears fruit of negative, unkind behavior and probably more than even harsh words, critical concepts, 
No affirmation of her work around the house. Just attacking this Hagar. To the point, perhaps, even of physical abuse. That we find, fourthly, Hagar's helplessness in the passage. Here's this pitiful woman. She runs away from her mistress, verse 8 says. I am running, she says to the angel, away from my mistress Sarai. And the angel of the Lord told her, you go back to your mistress, which indeed she does. Submit to her. Probably not what Hagar wanted to hear. Hagar was probably, and in my opinion, the, the least guilty of the parties in this story, wasn't she? And maybe some of you can relate to, to the loneliness that maybe she felt to the frustration at the injustice of her circumstances. I didn't have anything to do with this, really. I mean, if you're just the servant girl, and then the head of the household, the king of the, of the ranch, comes to you and says, I want to make you my wife. Listen, that's, that's like a promotion that you never dreamed would happen. Especially when it's acceptable in the culture and in the neighborhood. I mean, she thought things were going well. Now, through the abuse of Sarai, she's running through the desert, probably angling across the landscape towards Egypt. It's, it's difficult terrain. She doesn't know what to do. She doesn't have any support around here. She doesn't have any safety. She has no security. She has to be angry. She has to be hurt. She has to feel like a victim. She's been abused. She's now isolated. It's an incredible act of injustice, as I've said. She has no options. She doesn't know what to do. And so there she is, distressed, lost in the desert. I want you to notice what happens next because there is a lesson in Hagar's helplessness about number five, God's faithfulness in this story. Notice that an angel of the Lord, it says, appears to her. I believe, and most Bible students take that Hagar's response after this messenger from the Lord leaves, that it was actually a Christophany or a Theophany, probably a Christophany, that would mean it was the second member of the Godhead, who appeared to her in a visual bodily form like an angel or a human being of some kind before the incarnation ever took place, some 2,000 years roughly before the incarnation. We'll talk about that in just a minute as she names this place and names a name for this messenger, a name of God. I want you to notice that Hagar in her lostness, Hagar in her helplessness becomes encouraged by God's faithfulness. The angel of the Lord, verse 11, also said to her as we look at our Bibles now, you are now with child. I think Hagar understood that. Everybody in the camp understood that. But what she didn't know, there were no ultrasounds. You will have a son. Well, that's what the whole deal was about trying to have a son. And you shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard, and here's a clue to how Hagar's feeling, of your misery. Ishmael, the Lord hears. God hears. Do you ever feel like the Lord doesn't hear you? 
How long have you been telling the Lord of your misery and the heavens are silent? Listen, often as is in the case with Abram, Sarai, and Hagar, we are involved in a bigger story. We are involved in a greater scope of sequential events and we don't always understand what's happening. But one of the things we must not do, like the disciples in the boat when Jesus was asleep and the storm squall comes up, we must not think that we're going to die while Jesus sleeps. Because He is the God who hears. And in her misery, God comes to Hagar to comfort her. God is compassionate to Hagar. God knows that she's been abused. God knows that she's in this circumstance outside the will of God. Have you ever felt that way? And then as he instructs her to name this boy who will be born Ishmael, think of what God is doing. Even that, in a sense, is an act of compassion. Every time she names that boy, and how often will a mother say the name of her child, she will be saying, the God who hears me. God has heard me. God hears me. Ishmael, come eat your cereal. Ishmael, pick up your shoes. Ishmael, run and hush that dog. Ishmael, you go get the goats. Ishmael, run over to the neighbors. God hears me. God hears me. And God gave the name that Hagar would recognize on a daily basis that he has indeed heard her. He's a listening God. You know, it goes even deeper than that in God's faithfulness. I want you to see then, let's go ahead and read through what the angel says, what God says to her again, but we're going to not address the part about Ishmael until our final point. The angel of the Lord, verse 11, once again, also said to her, You are now with child, and you will have a son. You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him and he will live in hostility toward all his brothers. Now verse 13. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. She recognized this was the Lord speaking to her. And isn't it interesting that, it, that an, an Egyptian slave girl, a descendant of Ham, names God this name, in your King James Bible, it might still have it that way, El Roy, capital E-L, capital R-O-I. El Roy, Almighty One Who Sees, El Roy. I'm named after my father's brother, El Roy. And a few years ago, when I was doing a study on the names of God, it occurred to me that my middle name is El Roy. And I used to get abused for that name a good bit. Hey, Elroy. All the guys in college called me Elroy a lot. And a lot of other things. <laughs> and now I like it. I like it. Elroy, the God who sees. The God who sees. You know, this had to be a comforting thing to Hagar, didn't it? You are in the wilderness. You have been abused. You are the victim here. You are the one that shouldn't be in this circumstance. You think you're all alone. And you know, it doesn't take very long sitting in the wilderness in your tears and in your brokenness to think, Lord, don't you hear me? Lord, what are the answers here? And it's not easy. Well, let me ask you a question. Does God ever stop loving you? Does God ever stop 
keeping His promises towards you? Does God ever stop being your shepherd? He doesn't. Sometimes we don't feel it. Sometimes it doesn't seem like He's in control. Sometimes it seems like the injustices of my life will overwhelm me. I was watching a documentary the other night on public television late at night about the HIV-AIDS epidemic in Africa. And there was a... I think this was Kenya, I think, if I remember correctly. And they were there, and they were walking through the quarters of this um, uh, hospital. I said in the first service, like a World War I commissary, and Stu Smith came to me and he said, Pastor Van, you buy things at a commissary. You don't put sick people in them. Um, I, I said, well, what did I mean? And um, uh, maybe a, a, domilus, a, dorm, a dormitory for sick people. Rows and rows of beds. I don't know what the airy word is for it that ends like that. You know what I'm saying, right? Those old Civil War, World War I type hospitals where the beds were three feet apart and in rows. And here over in Africa, even right now today, these, these pitiful children and men and women lay there in, lie there in their beds and they are eaten up and dying with HIV AIDS. And what, what grabbed my attention were three or four ladies in their beds together there who were just normal moms taking care of their children and their husbands had brought home this HIV through their unfaithfulnesses. And now they're skeletons dying in the hospital. You talk about an injustice. You talk about what's not fair. You talk about... Where is God when I need Him? What is this all about? Well, I can't explain that other than we live in a sinful, depraved world where wicked people do wicked things and the rain falls on the just and the unjust alike. But someday, in another place, in another time, in His presence, He will make all things right. And in the meantime, He is El Roy, the God who sees me in my affliction. We won't take time to turn there. Psalm 139 is probably the classic text, and you can jot that down if you want to just meditate through some great verses on the presence of God all around me at all times where I can be confident that God's Word says He's there and He will never leave me and forsake me. Whether I stand up, whether I sit down, whether it's dark or whether it's light, He sees me, He knows me. This omniscience, omnipresence of God, this all-knowingness, this all-presence of God, Psalm 139. A more familiar verse that just about everybody knows, even the pagans know Psalm 23.1, don't they? The Lord is my shepherd. What's the next phrase? I shall not want. Do we have a shepherd who loses track of his sheep or do we have an all-knowing shepherd? Listen, Hagar is being encouraged here these are comforting realities, aren't they? And I think, number one, there's two parts to this presence of God. The first part, number one, is the comforting presence of God. That's what I've been talking about. And if you are a victim of injustice, if you are in the wilderness alone today, you need to know Ishmael, God hears. You need to know El Roy, God sees. But I also want to put the word out that there's a second part to the presence of God, isn't there, that is very convicting there is a comforting presence of God and there is a convicting presence of God. 
Proverbs chapter 15, verse 3 says, The eyes of the Lord are everywhere, keeping watch on the wicked and the good. I used to teach that to kids by making it a rhythm, keeping watch on the wicked and the good. You can memorize that verse real quick. But why don't you turn with me to Hebrews in the New Testament quickly, would you please? Let's do take time to look up Hebrews 4.13. This is a relatively familiar passage in Hebrews, and it, but it's a powerful reminder of the convicting part of the formula of the ever-watching eyes of God in our lives. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13. Will you turn there, please? First and Second Timothy, Titus, Philemon. Aren't we coming to Hebrews? There it is. Hebrews 13, verse 4, right before you get to the book of James. He, I said 4.13, not 13.4. If I said 13.4, that's wrong. It's 4.13, okay? Hebrews 4, let's begin with verse 12. You know this one. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Now look at 4.13. You ought to mark this in your Bible if you write in your Bibles. This is part of the convicting presence of God in my life. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. Listen, that, that word for laid bare before Him, that's the word for naked. That means wide open, totally exposed before God. Listen, there is no backroom deal in Washington, D.C. going down that is not under the complete, utter spotlight and detailed scrutiny of God. There is no unfaithful man sneaking around some dark hallway without God's spotlight being fully blasting on him. Seeing everything, the thoughts of his mind, the intents of his heart, laid bare before him, and it's the one before whom I will stand one day. And I say to that, whoa. You don't get away with anything. You can't sneak on God. You can't snooker God. You can't say, look over there and go over here. His spotlight, you can't step out of it. It's like the old news chopper right over the guy who's running through the back alley on cops. And the dogs are chasing him. And man, that... That floodlight's right on the guy's running. There he goes. There he is. There he is. There he is. The eyes of the Lord are everywhere. Listen, young people. I would encourage you today to begin to build into your thinking the reality of the fear of that spotlight. The reality that God sees me and there is no closed door in some college dorm that he can't see through. There is no overcast sky on any rainy day that bothers the eyesight of our Lord. And you should tremble at this reality. That's what the fear of God is. He is an awesome and a holy God and a God of expectation. And he sees me and he knows me. Oh, yeah, I want to be comforted. That in some dark alley, as I have to run an errand, Lord, you're with me. 
You'll never leave me or forsake me, and I do not have to fear what men can do unto me, and I am comforted by the presence of God. Those of you who've buried your husbands and it's dark at night and you can't sleep, He's with you, and there's a comforting presence day by day and with each passing moment. But there's also the awesome reality that His spotlight is on me at all times. Well, there's a lesson, isn't there, in Genesis 16. Hagar's helplessness leads to some lessons about God's faithfulness for us. Ishmael, God hears. El Roy, God sees me. She names that well after Lahe Roy. I don't know how to say it. See Willem afterwards. He'll tell you how to say it. Lahe Roy. It is still there between Kadesh and Bered. And so Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son she had born. And Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. Hagar's helplessness led to some lessons about God's faithfulness, but out of it all still is the reality, number six then, of Ishmael's wildness. Let's wrap up these last few minutes and let's just talk about this family feud that I laid the foundation for in this message. Notice now what the prophecy was from the, from the Lord to Hagar. You are now with child. You will have a son. You will name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery. Now verse 12. Focus on this. He will be a wild donkey of a man, and his hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand against him, and he will live in hostility towards his brothers. What you need to understand is that it's still going on today. And in essence, what we have here is we have the origin of the Arabs, basically. We have, and it's possible someone's here of Arab descent, and you say, wait a minute, something wrong with me? No, there's nothing wrong with you. You can't help who you are. And God loves you just like everybody else. You're an equal person to everybody else. But the reality of the fact is, check it out. Just like we did with our microscope and our telescope in Genesis 1 and 2, seeing if the Bible matches up with the realities of our world. Get in your chopper helicopter and go around the world and assess the situation and tell me if the Arabs and the Jews aren't fighting today. Tell me if they're not shooting rockets over there. Tell me if they're not pounding their podiums, calling for the nuclear vaporizing of the Jews. And it's Arabs and its cousins of the Arabs and its related descendants of the Canaanites, the sons of Ham. In fact, let's study our Bible for just a minute. I will get you out of here briefly. But while we're on Ishmael, the father of the Arabs, think about it now, okay, we have Abraham. He has a wife, Sarai. God has promised to give him a son, the son of promise, the son through whom the world will be blessed. And it's through the Jews, the Israelites, that they will be blessed. He counter goes around and does an end around God's will, lays down with Hagar, has a son named Ishmael. Same father, Isaac, Abram, Abram, Ishmael, half-brothers. He's a wild donkey of a man. That's the word picture that they totally understood and that Hagar possibly, even while she was sitting there in the wilderness, could have looked up in the wilderness where she was and there was, it was a common thing of a, of a, 
a wild breed of donkeys that roamed. There was a, a horse-like animal, and they couldn't tame it. They couldn't get any, you couldn't get any productivity out of it. It was just this wild desert animal. It's used a couple different times in the Old Testament. Uh, God used this word picture of this same wild desert donkey of his children Israel many years later when he said, you've gone running off after other gods like one of these wild donkeys in heat. You're out chasing the wind. It's a, it's a strong negative picture and it's always in Scripture. This wild donkey thing is a, it's a negative picture in Scripture of an untamable, unruly, ungodly person. And it says here, he will live in hostility toward his brothers. Well, it's never end. They blow each other up. They give their very lives to blow up some more Israeli children and school children on a bus. Tourists in a hotel. Israelis on vacation have to dive down into a bomb shelter because they're launching rockets over onto them. And they live in just a little sliver of the promised land compared to the river to the river that they were given. But their brothers hate them. And with the other sons of Ham that have settled the whole area up into today's Iran, Iraq, Pakistan, they hate the Israelis. They hate the Jews. And didn't we hear testimony of it this week over and over from both the Arabs and the cousins and their own cousins who are the descendants of Ham and are the result of the Canaanites, the Hittites of old, and little Ahmadinejad, whatever his name is, denies the Holocaust, calls for the nuclear evaporation of the land of Israel, and the world sits around like we're supposed to be polite and listen to this stuff. What is that all about? And I thought if you're up in the news at all that Benjamin Netanyahu did a phenomenal job responding. If the world would listen to that man, he's a good leader. And if the President of the United States would listen to him, we would continue to be blessed. You can build a strong argument that one of the reasons God has blessed America with all of her faults is that America has stood with Israel even from day one in 1948 and 49 when they began as a nation. And we were the first country and the leader of the free world to recognize them within seconds of the declaration of their statehood. And I'll tell you something. You just watch the news and you watch the countries who don't stand with Israel and you watch them crumble. And anytime we have a voice to stand with Israel, we need to stand with Israel. Does that mean we hate Arabs? No, we don't hate Arabs. We don't hate any man. We don't call for their destruction if they will live peacefully. We reach out with the Word of God to evangelize them. I want to show you a little bit more about Ishmael very quickly, and then we'll be done. Look at your Bible, and I want you to look in chapter 21, verse 8, quickly. Just as we're thinking about Ishmael and, and what became of him and how he hated his brothers and how this is talked about. In chapter 21, and we'll not take time to read it, but we'll get to this again in the near future, we have the birth of Isaac. Finally, in the beginning of chapter 21, you have Isaac born of Sarai, literal physical birth of this old lady. And then, look at verse 8 quickly. 
the child, that was Isaac, grew and was weaned. And on the day Isaac was weaned, Abraham held a great feast. But Sarah, her name has been changed. We're going to find that out next, next week in chapter 17. But Sarah saw that the son whom Hagar the Egyptian had borne to Abraham was mocking. And she said to Abraham, Get rid of that slave woman and her son, for that slave woman's son will never share in the, in the inheritance with my son Isaac. Listen. You moms can relate to this. I know you can. You've got this sweet little boy or little girl and you're at some event and big kids come and pushed them down and skinned their knees and made them cry and took their toy away and, and pestered them. And she-bear comes alive, right? And we've got Ishmael mocking, making faces, stealing Isaac's toys, putting his hand in his ice cream, whatever. Messing up his happy day here. And Sarai says, get that creature out of here. And that slave woman. That wasn't a slave woman. That was Abram's wife. She was on equal standing legally with Sarai. Whether she liked it or not. And whether she liked it or not, it was her idea. Get her out of here. And we have a very similar experience of what happens They leave then at this point. We'll just leave that story, but turn to chapter 25, verse 9, and let me show you something about Ishmael here. 25, 9. As adults, then, they come back, and they're at peace enough to bury their father. Chapter 25, verse 9. Chapter 25, verse 9. Then Abram breathed his last, verse 8, and died at a good old age, an old man and full of years, and he was gathered to his people his sons Isaac and Ishmael buried him in the cave. Both boys loved their father. These boys would live in hostility towards each other. Look down at verse 12. This is the account of Abram's son Ishmael, 25:12, whom Sarah's maidservant Hagar the Egyptian bore to Abram. We'll not take time to read it, but guess what you have in the next two verses? You have listed, guess how many sons? Twelve sons. Does that sound familiar? This is like the antithesis of Isaac's world, isn't it? He's going to have 12 sons. He's going to have two sons, and one of them's going to have 12 sons. Of promise. Those are the 12 tribes of Israel. Here we have Ishmael has 12 sons, and they're wild men. And look what it says. You go down, and it says their names, and their settlements, and their camps. And then look at verse 17 of chapter 25 of Genesis. And altogether Ishmael lived 137 years. He breathed his last and died, and he was gathered to his people. His descendants settled in the area from Havilah to Shur, near the border of Egypt, as you go towards Ashur, and they lived in hostility towards all their brothers. Have we heard that before? Yes, we have. They live in hostility. Let's turn to chapter 36 real quick. Chapter 36, we're almost done. I just think I want to finish this thought up about Ishmael so we don't have to come back to it. Listen, let's go to our family tree again. Remember Abram? You know Abram, right? Yeah, we're talking about him. If you don't know Abram, you need to go to the bathroom or something. Okay? <laughs> Abram. Through Sarai, he has Isaac. Through Hagar, he has Ishmael. Isaac will have two sons. Jacob and Esau, remember the younger one's going to get the blessing. And Esau was a hairy man, it says in the, in the King James Version. All right? 
and he's a wild man, and he was a hunter, all right? And he becomes the father of the Edomites, and he intermarries with the sons of Ham, the Canaanites, and he joins up with the sons of Ishmael. Look at this, look at this. Look what it says. This is the account of Esau, okay? That is Edom. Esau took his wives from the women of Canaan, Ada, daughter of Elan, the Hittite, and Obahoma, daughter of Anna, and granddaughter of Zibion, the Hivite. Also, Basemath, the daughter of... What's the next word? Okay, think about that. Esau is going to marry Ishmael's daughter. The father then ultimately of the Edomites, out of them comes another, these cousins, who hate their brothers. And so you have this family tree that just grows and grows, and the evil ones connect up, the ones who refuse to follow after God. Today, we see them banded together, as through the centuries, through a common religion, and that's Islam. And the Muslim people hold Ishmael as the son of promise, not Isaac as the son of promise. So Esau takes as a wife the daughter of Ishmael. That would make them first cousins and then husband and wife. And we won't take time to turn there because we've got to shut down. But remember earlier in the message I referenced Joseph and his coat of many colors and the family feud there, how his brothers killed an animal, put the blood on his coat, took it home, broke the heart of their father by saying that his favorite son was dead, which the boys all took satisfaction in because they were sick their whole life of hearing how great their youngest brother was and their dad never paid attention to them payback time. I forget which one he was. One of the brother, older brothers, Zebulun, one of them, I don't remember their names anymore right now off the top of my head. They're getting ready to kill Joseph. Remember what? The older one, Reuben, says, don't kill him, throw him in the pit. They throw him in the pit. They're scratching their head. They come up with the plan of putting the animal blood on the coat to take to their father. And they look up and they see a bunch of camels going across the desert. You can look it up in chapter 36. Guess who they were? They were Ishmaelites. Ishmaelites. They sell Joseph to the Ishmaelites. The wandering band of Arabs out there in the desert. Listen. They can get together at Camp David all they want. They can talk peace and on and on. God said before he was ever born, he was going to be hostile towards his brothers. And it's never going to end. I don't have all the answers, and I'm, I don't know what I'd do if I was the president. I wouldn't give away more Israeli land, I'll tell you that. That's not God's answer. You know what they need? They need Jesus preached to them, don't they? They need Jesus, man. That's it. Well, there you go. There's the setup of the ultimate family feud. So when you watch the news now, you try to discern which ones are the sons of Ishmael and which ones are the sons of Isaac, and it'll help you a little bit keep score. Let's bow in prayer. Before I pray, can I just mention quickly, with our heads bowed, just the reminder once again that we've kind of harped on a little bit lately the seriousness of the sins of our earthly fathers upon the children. Earthly fathers, we have such a responsibility to walk with God. 
and not shortchange his blessing on our households like Abram did. And may I remind you that might be abused, lonely, unfairly treated of the security of your heavenly Father who sees you today. Find security in his eyesight, Elroy. Father, thank you that you see us. Thank you that you hear us. Thank you that you know us. Father, may we as heads of households today determine as never before that we would walk in the truth and live the truth. Father, may we have a heart for Arab people and reaching them with the gospel and Muslim people. Father, may we have a heart to stand with Israel, turn the, turn the heart and mind of our president and the leadership of our country once again to look favorably upon Israel, that we would be blessed, and that we would walk in obedience to your word. Father, for those who are abused and who are like Hagar, the victims of others' sin, would you please comfort them with your eyesight on them today? May this be a very real concept that you have not abandoned them, you have not forgotten them, that you are in control, and that you are indeed a shelter in the time of our storms. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.